John Eno, and welcome to the Reed Smith Podcast, Inclusivity Included, Powerful Personal Stories. In each episode of this podcast, our guests will share their personal stories, passions, and challenges, past and present, all with a goal of bringing people together and learning more about others. You might be surprised by what we all have in common, inclusivity included. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. We've got a special episode here. It's part of a new series we're developing in terms of deconstructing white privilege. Um, I'm here, very privileged to be uh, here with uh, uh, a great guest as well as uh, uh, our co-host. Devon Jaffier uh, is our senior manager for public relations here at at Reed Smith. Uh, And he also is the professional staff chair of our Black African American Employee Resource Group. So, Devon, great to have you uh, co-hosting today. Uh, thanks for having me, John. Appreciate it. And our special guest today is a, a friend that I've gotten to know over this course of this year, Ryan Williams. Uh, Ryan is a cultural worker in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, and in fact, when uh, Ryan and I were talking, it was literally the weekend after um, the George Floyd uh, murder and living there in Minneapolis, uh, He's certainly seen a lot, a lot of things uh, in, in, in firsthand. So Ryan is the author of numer- numerous articles, including Examining Whiteness. Uh, I got to know Ryan because he's an instructor for a program called Reimagining Whiteness, uh, which is a group of um, for uh, white uh, people to better understand their racial identity, the evolution of whiteness, and examining the causes and roots of uh, racism. So um, welcome to the show. Um, Ryan, really appreciate you being here. Uh, it's a real honor to be here, John. Thank you. So, Ryan, maybe let's start with talking a little bit about uh, your reimagining whiteness programs. You know, what motivated you to put that together, and kind of what have been your goals for the program? Yeah, I think uh, the the course is designed to really shed light on this thing called whiteness, right? And I think for so many of us, we us being those of us that are considered white and have white skin, we've never thought about what that means. Certainly haven't thought, considered that it, it um, impacts our life chances in any significant way. And that's not news. That's, uh, you know, a lot of people who talk about whiteness and white privilege and do anti-racism work uh, have correctly pointed out that that's a part of white privilege is the ability not to think about race and not to think about, about whiteness. And I wanted to push that conversation a little bit because I think where that discourse has gone is that it actually needs to be examined. It needs to be um, critically examined for all, all the violence that has been perpetuated in its name and the ways that it has disconnected people who look like me from uh, the rest of humanity. And so that was really the the impetus for the course was to reimagine what does it mean it's not what does it mean to have white skin to be considered white and to function within whiteness um not just to, to acknowledge that it matters but to reimagine a different way of being in that context moving towards the dismantling of white supremacy and the the eradication and abolition of whiteness Brian thanks for that you know um you know going through some of your 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 previous work and um, you know, it's, it's quite a litany of <laughs> that you've done in the past, but I, you know, I'm really curious to getting your perspective of how white privilege is defined, because, you know, I think that especially in, in these times, uh, we've heard various, uh, definitions of the term, 
um, some of them uh, more detailed than others. So I'd be curious to hearing how you define it and how do you express that definition in your in your course? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so I think before I before I, before anytime I answer this question or discuss the topic of white privilege, I want to draw attention to um, an often quoted saying by Audre Lorde: "The master's tools will never be used to dismantle the master's house." And I think there's no clearer example of that than in the failure of our language to talk about whiteness and white supremacy. And um, this is an example of it, right? So like, certainly there are privileges that come with having white skin, but it is not a privilege to be white. And I think that is the the point that I really want to drive home. So what's a privilege of white skin, right? Um, Peggy McIntosh's work is foundational in this, where unpacking the knapsack, people who look like me can go to the, to the store and get uh, skin-colored Band-Aids that match, right? We can see people who look like us and all these things. And like, yes, those are, those are, those are things that affirm our humanity and support our humanity and make us feel seen. They should not be privileges, that everybody should feel that way. Right. Um, and I know as 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 this discourse has evolved and to become more sophisticated, you'll hear that you'll hear people say, well, some of these privileges are just things that everybody should experience. And some of them are unearned. So, for example, my name uh, is is significantly more likely to get a call back for a job interview than a name that sounds, quote unquote, ethnic, like a non-white name. And that that is a privilege that should not happen. And that's an unearned advantage that's given to me. And I want to acknowledge that. And so to, to complicate what should maybe have been a, 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 sim- a simpler answer, white privilege is simply the ability to exist in our world with assuming that your full humanity is going to be acknowledged. And then having even, even to the point that your own deficiencies um, or mediocrity are not held against you, right? So there's there's shirts uh, and like sayings where it's like I, I move through the world with the confidence of a mediocre white man, and I think like that's white privilege. It's it's um it's the ability not to have to live into your full potential, and I don't think that that's a privilege. I think that that that's uh, a shame, and something that I, I I would I don't I think we need to to work really hard at unlearning and dismantling. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's great. And I think, you know, having that, that, that context is very helpful towards, you know, desystematizing, you know, white privilege. And, and I appreciate you going into that, that level of detail. Uh, Now, you know, in one of your, an article you wrote for the good men project, I noticed that, that, you know, you came, you, you Shout out this. to the Good Men Project. Shout yeah, we got good, a few articles I, out I, there. I, you know, to be honest with you, when I saw when I saw your work there, I was like, okay, I can I can I can get down with this guy. This is solid. Um, but you wrote in one of your pieces back in, in April of this year. Um, you said uh, that white Americans need to do the work to understand their own identities and work towards an ethic of solidarity, solidarity, and shared community, um, which is a mouthful. So you know, I'm curious <laughs> what you think is is the uh, is the first step in doing that work. Yeah, uh, great question, and I'm so, ooh, I just got goosebumps so I can talk about this. <laughs> I the first step is, in that is understanding our own identities, right? And the first thing that I understood when I when I'm like 
it, it lit the fire underneath me to do this work. It wasn't. It wasn't reading White Like Me by Tim Wise. Shout out to Tim and and that work. So many of us are in this work because of him um, and his work. But that and and unpacking the invisible knapsack. Shout out to to Peggy McIntosh for that as well. But those weren't the things that really lit the fire underneath me. The thing that lit the fire underneath me was learning how fluid and changing and fraudulent the legal definition of white has been. Right. That it is legally like you can go through case law. You can trace its origins in in the colonies being directly tied to poor multicultural, poor people rebelling for material resources. You can name that's the part where whiteness starts and then you can trace its development and how it served those in power. And so this identity, so many of us have been taught, oh, we're white. And then we accept it and we don't critically interrogate it. And it just is, it becomes the water we swim in. And it just is what we are. And it's not even a real thing. Where do white people come from? Right? Some people say Europe. Well, Italians weren't white for a long time. My ancestry, Irish people weren't white for a long time. How did we become white? Uh, there's There was just recently an article being shared. Uh, is Antonio Banderas a person of color? It's complicated. Spain, he's Spain. He's from Spain. That's Europe. If white people come from Europe, then he's white, right? But obviously there's other indicators that other him, mainly his last name and his language that he speaks, which is associated with brown people in America. And so now there's an othering there, right? Um, and you can literally go through every ethnicity, uh, Hungarian, Southern and, and Eastern Europeans. How did they become white? Uh, that was the thing that lit the fire underneath me to understand what am I? What am I on this planet? Where are my ancestors from? Um, and my work at the Cultural Wellness Center on the south side of Minneapolis really solidified the importance of that work for me and the life-giving nature of finding out who we are and what cultural practices we bring. So I, I grew up in Northeast Minneapolis, and I, I, I told this story uh, in my class. Uh, John, you probably remember it, but I'm gonna, I want to tell it here briefly because I think it is um, informative and it illustrates the fraudulent nature of whiteness and why it's so important to take that first step to understand ourselves as something other than that. Um, in Northeast Minneapolis is a, a, a densely immigrant neighborhood, working class neighborhood. When I was growing up, mostly Eastern European. So we had a lot of Polish and a lot of German families there. Um, other languages were Polish and German, right? Um, it's sh- since shifted as labor trends have shifted and immigration trends have shifted. So it's increasingly uh, Central and Mexican American. Um, but I told the story about this this bar. Its its name was Stashus. It was on the corner of Lowry and University. If there's any Northeasters out there listening to this, you'll know that Stashus is like the place that you went to, right? It's a Northeast cornerstone. Um, and the recession in 2008 hit Northeast really hard. Uh, Northeast is one of the most heavily gentrified, if not the most heavily gentrified neighborhoods in Minneapolis. Um, and Stashus closed. And I remember a lot, a lot of us were really sad about it. Um, and it opened back up and we were like, great. Well, it didn't open back up. Something opened back up on that corner, a restaurant and a bar. And it was like, cool, we're going to try this out. It had a new, fresh, new facelift. Stashu's had like one window. Now the, what's there has, it's all windows. It's got a patio and, and it's great, but it's informative because what opened is called Stanley's and Stanley's is an anglicized version of Stashu's. And it's just, to me, it's such a powerful example of the price that being white or quote unquote American now, 
Um, Dr. Neil Painter wrote a history of white people um, and argues that we're in the fourth expansion of whiteness, which ties whiteness to Americanness. Um, and I, we, we can talk about that. Probably not. That's, that might be a whole nother podcast episode. But so many of us gave up so much. We gave up our languages. We gave up our our traditions. We gave up our religions. We gave up um, our foods in a lot of in a lot of cases. Right. For what? for the ability to not be discriminated against, to not experience violence in this country, to be considered a part of America, to assimilate. And our heroes even are lauded as saying, this is what it takes, right? Teddy Roosevelt, it takes two generations to be fully American. You, you know, we talk about the nativist trends as if they, they're not fully present in 2020 and that they're not tied to whiteness. Um, and I think that's because we don't understand who we are and what we gave up. And so for me, that's the first step is understand that our ancestry is tied to something that's not that that isn't whiteness isn't its totality, that we came from a cultural people. We have cultural practices. We have things that tie us to humanity and tie us to creation in really meaningful ways. Um, and we need to reconnect with that. And then once we do that, then we become capable of being in genuine relationship across lines of difference, right? And so particularly here in Minnesota, you'll see this at this time. There's Everybody wants to be out here doing something, right? Right now, I've never seen so many people, so many organizations, not just in Minneapolis, but across the country saying like, something has to change, what is it? And sadly, a lot of them haven't done the work to understand themselves. And so they end up trying to do things for other people. And that that's saviorism and nobody needs that, right? It's a deficit model of thinking about communities that have been marginalized, particularly uh, black and brown communities, particularly black communities. I think we need to name that. Like our country is built on the genocide of native people and the, the dehumanization and anti-black racism that was required to justify the institution of slavery. And so when we're trying to do things for those communities, we're not doing the necessary work to be in genuine relationship. And that doesn't lead to a healthy future. And we can only be in genuine relationship if we understand ourselves. Whiteness does not allow us to understand ourselves. And so that's why I think that those, uh, those two steps are really, really important. I wish I could say that wasn't a, a mouthful <laughs> in explanation, but you know, this thing that we call whiteness is centuries in the making and it's not going to be, it's not going to be quickly unlearned or, um, not going to be messy to unlearn it and untangle these things because it's tied deeply to masculinity. It's tied deeply to capitalism and our economy. Um, but we got to start that work and we got to be very clear that we're doing our work for ourselves and that it's about developing our own identities and our own humanity, not doing something for communities, but with communities. Yeah. I mean, listen, that, that I, I didn't consider that to be, um, a lot of words at all. I think it's a very no, complex. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's a very complex issue, and it's and and quite honestly, it also requires people to challenge everything they knew about themselves. And you know, one of the yeah. most difficult things to do is to deconstruct everything you've been told, everything you've been taught, um, everything that most people in your social circles have been told and, th- and taught, and it requires a certain amount of of, of rebellion. Um, against that thinking. So, so no, I think complex um, situations require complex explanations. Uh, but that actually leads to my next question is that, you know, we, we, we tend to have a bit of a difficulty in dealing with complex, I think it's just human nature in general. 
in comp in, in complex uh, uh, situations that that challenge our our uh, prescribed thinking. So, um, how do you raise this issue to someone that you have either recently met or someone you're, you're at a cocktail party and and this issue comes up, um, which you know. If I can editorialize a little bit, I think it's probably going to happen more often than not, given the, the moment that we're in. But how do you broach such a, a complicated, complex, and, and, and in many ways personal issues with people who may not necessarily be all that comfortable engaging in that level of conversation? Yeah, uh, another great question. I, it's always lead with relationships and lead with curiosity, right? Um, it is, it's a, it's a trap of particularly liberal whiteness to want to be in competition and be the quote unquote, you know, wokest white person or like the one that doesn't, that isn't racist, that isn't, I know these things, I've read these books. And so therefore, let me tell you about all the ways you're messing up. And again, it's ironic because that is steeped in whiteness, right? That level of competition, that level of, um, that lack of humility to be able to sit back and be in genuine relationship and understand where somebody's coming from to want to be right. And so I think when you lead with that, it, it can diffuse many of those situations. Um, and then that, that opens the space to ask questions and to ask more, because honestly, what I've, what I've experienced um, in those conversations is that people are feeling the, the pains of American life. And what do I mean by that? It's like our society does not do a good job of honoring humanity, period. Right. If you're not a wealthy, white, straight, cis man, you're going to feel some sort of, of, of otherness, some sort of marginalization. We have our basic human needs are tied to our ability to pay for them. Right. And so what I've experienced is that people want to be heard. They want to be seen. They want to know that what they're feeling is valid, that they're worthy of human compassion, of love, of relationship. So when you lead with that, you can then point out that, hey, yep, I hear you. I see that. And what's happening right now or how you're moving and, and the, the worldview that you're perpetuating is leveraging uh, what W.E.B. Du Bois calls as the wages of whiteness, right? It's leveraging the only thing that you have, which is the fact that you're white, to, to, put, to put yourself above other people who share your... 99.9% of your interests, right? So there's a book, Dying of Whiteness, that illustrates this categorically. The The regions of our country that would benefit from universal health care are the most staunchly against it. They'd benefit the most from it and are the most staunchly against it. Why? Because social programs and taking care of our, uh, like a social contract that genuinely values humans is seen as being affirmative action or done for, quote unquote, those people. And so asking questions, affirming humanity and pointing out commonalities are how we move people to be in solidarity. And then giving examples of anti-racist people. So like we all, I I shouldn't even say we all, because I'm not sure that everybody does know who William Lloyd Garrison is, right? But oftentimes he was an abolitionist, uh, He's taught, he's framed only as like, oh, this was Frederick Douglass's friend and he wrote this newspaper, right? But he's not the only abolitionist. Why don't we know about John Brown? Why don't we know about Miles Horton and the Highlander Center? There are examples of solidarity, um, of anti-racist solidarity, of economic justice movements, of organizations pushing for 
for basic human decency to be fundamental in how we distribute resources. And we just don't know about them. And I think taking the opportunity to build, to build and to inform about those things allows us to then organize for, to solidify those things in policy and in systems. And that's what excites people. And then you let, and then you let relationships develop as they will. I I never want to say like, you're not going to get along with everybody, no matter what, you know what I mean? Like there are white people that don't (laughs) like me. There are black people that don't like me. And that's okay. Like you don't have to like everybody just because you are across a line of difference. What you can't do is advocate for their systemic oppression (laughs) and vote for policies that systemically oppress them and limit their life chances based on that because it somehow makes you feel better. And that's what whiteness does, particularly the people who are oppressed in other areas, right? So you'll get poor white people who want to leverage their poverty and, and justify their investment in whiteness because they're poor. Well, actually, people of color and poor black and brown people have way more in common with you than than uh, the the white people who you're trying to, to, to be in solidarity with. You know, uh, all of those, those things, right? And I talk about working class and poor white people because that's my experience. I don't want to speak on anybody else's experience, but um, affirming that reality, asking questions and leading with relationships are how you have these conversations. Hey, Ryan, I know in our class, um, we talked uh, a little around like Robin DiAngelo's book, White Fragility. Um, yeah. You know, what, 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 uh, not to summarize her book, but just in your view, you know, why is it hard for uh, white, uh, white people to talk about race? Yeah. Shout out to, to Robin. Um, book is a, is amazing. Very, very uh, important tools for understanding uh, race. So if you haven't picked up white fragility, please do so. Um, but she does a great job of talking about it. Why is it so hard? Is because for, for forever, We've been told that racists are bad people, and therefore, if you perpetuate racism or you're involved in inflicting racial harm, you're a bad person. And that's just not the case. And if you believe that, of course, you don't want to be you don't want to be seen as racist, or you're not even going to consider the fact that you're perpetuating systems or policies or practices that have racist outcomes, right? And so you can see that move uh, with with in Stand from the Beginning with Dr. Ibram Kendi and how to be an anti-racist, moving, trying to move the dialogue and the the understanding away from being personal character flaws and more towards worldviews, ideas, policies, um, and systems that that shape us and socialize us, and that nobody nobody is is free from this. Nobody's free from this. Um, and, but as long as we keep talking about it as, uh, you know, personal bigoted prejudices and therefore, if, you know, accepting things like, well, we don't know what was in his heart to shut down a conversation about something that clearly was racist. It's going to remain very difficult to have the conversations. Um, if we can say, you know what, this has actually nothing to do with my moral compass or like my personal character. This is the water. This is the world I was socialized in. So of course I'm going to be, I'm going to, I'm going to perpetuate these things. And then every time I get called out on it is a learning experience. It's a chance to grow. So we should, and, and Robin says this, we should be thanking, we should be thankful for those opportunities. Anytime somebody can point out a way that we can be better, we should be thankful for it. And that, that is how we should frame 
uh, conversations about race and our own collusion in racist systems. Uh, Brian, I, I know that we're we're running out of time, but uh, one one other quick question for you. I know that this yeah, moment sure. has seemed to galvanize um, momentum around uh, dismantling a system that has uh, prioritized um, to a certain extent systemic racism, racial injustice, and opportunities uh, disenfranchisement to a certain extent. Um, and we've seen organizations, businesses, you know, major corporations. Uh, start to finally come around to realizing how significant a problem this is in, in our country. And, you know, I know that, that you've certainly seen, you know, uh, countless uh, businesses uh, post uh, hashtag Black Lives Matter on, 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 on Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and Instagram. And, yeah. and you know, we've now we're into a, a bit of a wave of, of companies that are that are recognizing Juneteenth uh, uh, this year. However, you know, I'm curious as to your take on on what are some of the more meaningful approaches that organizations should really pursue uh, if they're serious about breaking the cycle of white privilege. Yeah, so there's a there's a few things I think um, organizations need to uh, create the environment for anti-racist action and, and like create the environment for anti-racism to exist. So too, too many organizations are reaching out and looking for a checklist. What do we do? How do we hire? How do we, how do we hire more, more black people, for example? Well, hiring, just hiring more black people and placing them in a racist environment is inflicting, going to, is and will inflict racial harm and is not, is not equity, is not justice. Um, we need, we need white people to do their work so that People of color do not have to spend the emotional labor of teaching us how to be better people and how to not be racist. We need to do that work. So point blank corporations, organizations need to engage that work seriously. Uh, second, they need to look at paying people. They need to support reparations. Uh, it might be the most radical thing that's been on this podcast. I don't know. But like, there is absolutely no reason that that. African-American people, black people are, do not have reparations. Our country is built on wealth directly tied to slavery, no matter if you're in the North or the South. Those things, we need to take bold stances on policies like that. And, and we need to not be afraid to name specifically we're mitigating racial harm. And so this rising, rising tide lifts all boats narrative is, is false, right? One, we've seen that. The gap's actually increase they don't they don't decrease at all and net worth and all that like it's it, it doesn't it's not there's no rising tide and it's certainly not lifting all boats we need to be unapologetically mitigating racial harm and what does that look like that means being intentional about asking how is this impacting black people how is this impacting uh latinx people how is this impacting uh native people Right. A return where we're on native stolen native land, a return of any public land that's not being used right now. Or and There's so many different things that we could do um, that demonstrate a commitment to, to anti-racism and racial justice. And I think organizations play a huge role, both rhetorically and stating we uh, we we want this, um, but then also in, in practices and saying, like, we are going to create the environments that questions whiteness and just doesn't accept it as the norm that we must tolerate deviation from, but rather truly ex embrace difference. And we're going to build the skills to navigate 
conflict constructively and productively. I firmly believe the deepest relationships I have have been directly uh, the result of conflict, of positive, constructive conflict, because we're, we're, we're different. Everybody's different. So, of course, there's going to be differing perspectives that put us into, into conflict. Conflict doesn't have to mean end, end of relationship and, like, bad people. Uh, and so organizations play a huge role in that. Ryan, I really thank you for, um, boy, just so many, so much perspective, so much insight, and, and certainly coming from your perspective, um, you know, we all uh, can learn so much more, lots to put into play. Just a quick question before we wrap up, um, how can people sign up for Reimagining Whiteness and how can people get in touch with you? Yeah, great question. Um, so right now we are looking at opening up another section of Reimagining Whiteness. We've had two full right now. So uh, I'm really, I'm, I'm so excited about that there is like the the political will and the and the personal will to do this work um but we will be we will be opening up another one you could sign up for it by following me on twitter which is uh ryan at ryan 612 northeast ne um or on on facebook ryan verdon yeah and if there's if if you guys have contact information from the podcast feel free to share any of my contact information with any of your listeners Will do. Ryan, thanks for coming in. And Devon, it's great to co-host with you today. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. Uh, It was a pleasure. Pleasure was all ours, man. Thank you. Inclusivity Included is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. Available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, and ReedSmith.com. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. All rights reserved.